0: Our scripture reading this morning is taken from the book of Daniel, chapter 2, verses 1 through 13, which is located in your bulletin and in our church Bibles on page 737. Please stand if you are able as we read from the Old Testament. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. Tell your servants the dream, and we will show the interpretation. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The word from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb, and your houses shall be laid in ruins. But if you show the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. They answered a second time and said, Let the king tell his servants the dream, and we will show its interpretation. The king answered and said, I know with certainty that you are trying to gain time, because you see that the word from me is firm. If you do not make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. Therefore, tell me the dream, and I shall know that you can show me its interpretation. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand. For no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult, And no one can show it to the king except the gods, whose dwelling is not with flesh. Because of this, the king was angry and very furious, and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. So the decree went out, and the wise men were about to be killed, and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Please be seated. Thank you to
1: Brendan for reading. We, um, we spared you the entire chapter. Uh, I've actually heard it read. It would have taken 12 minutes for us to read it through at a reasonable pace. Uh, some of you may be familiar with this passage already. Uh, for those of you who are not, I am going to uh, catch you up in a moment or two. But this is Daniel chapter 2. Uh, it will be helpful if you have the Bible open in front of you, either on your phone or um, from the Black Church Bibles in your uh, seats in front of you. So we saw last week how God gave Daniel and his friends a way to resist being squeezed, you remember, into the mold of Babylonian society. And how then God arranged for them to be placed in the higher ranks of the Babylonian civil service and in a particular place. Strangely for Jews, this is where we find them, this is where we find Daniel and his friends, Chapter 2, verse 12, they've been placed in the ranks of the sorcerers of Babylon, and they're dealing here with a Nebuchadnezzar who is in a fit of imperial rage because no one can decipher his dream. That's uh, where we read to. What happens next? Well, as you'll read here, the order to destroy all the sorcerers having been made, the man charged with executing everyone turns up at Daniel's house a man called uh, Ariok, turns up at the house, presumably with a squad of soldiers with their uh, swords drawn, ready to uh, execute the order. And Daniel. And Daniel, cool as a cucumber, uh, convinces him, by God's grace, not to kill him, but instead to arrange a meeting for him with Nebuchadnezzar. And the The backdrop to all of this is that God is at work giving grace and persuading all of these officials, even Nebuchadnezzar, to go along with uh, what Daniel is requesting. And then Daniel hotfoots it back to the prayer meeting with his friends with an understandable urgency. And Daniel then reports that in the middle of the night, God has answered his prayers by showing him not only what the dream means, but what it is what it is that Nebuchadnezzar dreamed. And he's then granted the next day an audience with Nebuchadnezzar, and he tells the king his dream. A great God, he says, has made known to the king what shall be known after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation is sure. And you can imagine, can't you, the moment when Daniel stopped speaking Everyone looking at Nebuchadnezzar for what his reaction would be. The tension in the throne room must have been palpable until we're told Nebuchadnezzar the great fell upon his face and worshipped the God of gods and the Lord of kings. That's the story. That's the history found in Daniel chapter 2. It's a long chapter. I wanted to uh, show you how this looks on Wordle. Have you ever used Wordle? You put all the words of Daniel 2 into Wordle. This is what you come up with. And you'll notice they're the three biggest words, the three biggest ideas that stand out prominently. This is what this chapter's about King, Dream, Daniel. So if you get nothing out of the sermon this morning apart from that, remember those three words. So it starts, reading here, it starts with the dream and the king's reaction to it, which then reaches Daniel. But it ends, notice in the opposite way, with Daniel explaining the dream, which then brings Nebuchadnezzar to his true king. That's how Daniel 2 goes. And we're going to look at it this morning in two parts, drawing everything together with the kind of application, I think, that the writer draws out for those seeking the interpreter of life. So if you would have the uh, Bible passage open, all of Daniel chapter 2, we will do our best to get through as much of it as we can. So, two main sections here. Number one, what humans do and do not know. And secondly, what God alone knows and makes happen. So, what humans do and do not know. I think first these first 11 verses, more or less what Brendan read for us. Uh, I was surprised to find out that there are lots of jokes about psychics and fortune tellers. Uh, for example... Two fortune tellers meet on the street. One says to the other, you're fine, how am I? (laughs) Griselda goes to a fortune teller who tells us, two men are madly in love with me. Griselda asks, who will be the lucky one? The fortune teller answers, Morris will marry you and Irving will be the lucky one. (laughs) (laughs) But, right, this is the fact, for many people fortune tellers are no joke. Not talking about the kinds of people that you might, for your own entertainment, walk into on a fairground, but the kind of people that will be frequented by people who are in desperation. Fortune tellers are often a port of reassurance in directionless life, but they are a dangerous port. at That they are a deceptive port. They are people who are clearly fraudulent. And take advantage of people in their weakness. I was just reading about a lady in Pennsylvania last year who was defrauded out of twenty-four thousand dollars by a fortune teller who had promised that she would show her a happier future. Many of you don't remember this. Thirty or forty years ago, I put a slide up, there was a celebrity astrologer called Jean Dixon. Do you remember Jean Dixon? She was well known in Hollywood, and she was enormously influential in public life, and people didn't realize how much of an influence she had until it came out that Richard Nixon was um, changing his policies because of her, and Nancy Reagan, in fact both Reagans, it became clear later, had consulted her and thought of her very highly in terms of her predictions. And apparently when Jean Dixon died in 1997, her last words were, I knew this would happen, which is actually probably not much of a prediction. (laughs) But for some of us, right, you know, perhaps you have been at a particularly desperate crossroads in your life and you've been tempted to go see a fortune teller. Maybe you thought it was helpful, maybe encouraging, maybe uncannily uh, fortuitous that you should go in and that they tell you what they had to say. Well, you should know they have a script, that the whole thing is flim-flam, they play on the confidence of people who are vulnerable. But the Bible tells us not to engage with them. And not simply because they're fraudulent, but because they are so often an avenue for darker forces in our lives, which we should avoid. Do not consult them, the Bible says. Do not have anything to do with them. In the words of God through Zechariah, the diviners see lies, they tell false dreams, and they give empty consolation. Well, what then are we to make of these magicians and these enchanters and these sorcerers and Chaldeans? There's a whole tribe of them here that Daniel and his friends had been placed among. Who were they? Well, they were an entire industry of state in in the empire of Babylon set up to reassure a nervous dictator that they had the gods and the future covered. The interesting thing, though, about this particular dream is it appears not to be simply strategic. In other words, it's not the kind of dream simply that is warning the king about the actions of another state or about some political intrigue at court, which might threaten his position. And so he's calling in his astrologers to find out who it is. Now we read in verse 3 that the king reports, I had a dream and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. And the way king, the king describes it to his astrologers is actually not like you would sit on a couch with your psychoanalyst, but rather how you would sit down perhaps with your exorcist. Because in Hebrew here, the word means agitating. The word is, it means it's breaking into his conscious world day and night. There are many dreams here, it's presumably recurring night after night with an urgency that we would ascribe and a fear that we would ascribe to nightmares. So this is a lesson to us that Nebuchadnezzar should pay attention to it. We read that Nebuchadnezzar was agitated. Here is a pagan king who gives total attention to the message of God to him. It's striking, isn't it? You know, we read that Josiah tore his robes when he and his companions discovered the law in in the Old Testament. Or those Believers in 1 Thessalonians, who Paul tells us received the gospel not as the words of men, but as the words of God to them, they took them eminently seriously because they knew that they were being communicated with by the person who had made them, by the one who had the right to decide what happens to them. And I think it's worth asking as you come to this and you see Nebuchadnezzar's reaction, what about you? You know, we have so many resources and the Bible is available to us on so many apps and in so many versions and in so many kind of funky electronic ways, but do we really anticipate that God will have anything to say to us personally on Sunday mornings? Does God communicate personally in such a way? Or are we here because this is just information to accumulate or You know, we might hear a joke or have hints at how to live. But words directly to you, to your soul, from the person who made you. I wonder, do you await with eagerness your own set-apart time with God in prayer or in Bible study? Do we as a congregation expect God to speak into our little worlds at all? Or have we essentially given up the hope of that and are just kind of running on autopilot? Because Nebuchadnezzar, you'll notice, had not. He didn't know who he was dealing with, but it was a matter of utmost urgency that he find out. It was terrifying to him. And look at what we see next. How does Nebuchadnezzar expose the fraud of his fortune tellers? Well, this may be a way of uh, dealing with fortune tellers if you need a way to do so. Notice they had responded, these people, these Chaldeans and sorcerers and enchanters and the like, to this crisis, presumably had come before in various different ways, and they used the same kind of words they'd always used, tell your servants the dream, we will show you the interpretation, O king, live forever forever. It's what we're here for. But the king, you'll notice, is not in the mood for their subjective analysis. So verses 5 and 6, he tells them something like, that's not enough for me. I need to verify that you are in contact with the person who is giving the dream to me. So I'm going to ask you more than I've ever asked you before. I'm going to ask you not what my dream means simply, but what my dream is. It would be a bit like turning up at the uh, fortune tellers on Forest Hill Avenue and going in and saying, um, when they offer to read your horoscope, say, thank you, and first I'd like you to begin by telling me my birthday. And until that happens, I'm not going to pay you a dime. And they will tell you, we cannot do that. And you'll say, funny, I've heard that before. And so Nebuchadnezzar, this is the deal. This is what he tells his sorcerers. Verse 5, they and their households are for the chop. He's going to wipe them out, all of them. They will be torn limb from limb, which you can imagine was a fairly large incentive. And this is their defense. And I think the way that this probably happened, this is what the commentators will tell you, is that these things happened in sections. So they haven't been given the ultimatum, went away, and then they came back again and gave the same answer again to a frustrated Nebuchadnezzar who told them, you know, the next time I see you, you will be bits of sorcerers. And so they tell him this in terms of their own defense. They say, in a curiously self-debunking way, what the king asks is difficult. And what they mean, again, in the original, paraphrasing the Hebrew, it's something like, this is freaking impossible. No one can do this. There's never, ever been heard of a person that could do this. No mortal, no man upon the earth can interpret both the dream and know it, which rather begs the question what they had been employed for in the first place and what they have been claiming. <coughs> Among all the equivalents, I remember when I was a kid being taken through confirmation by my priest who ended his... Uh, education of us by telling us that if Christianity was was not true, it didn't matter because it would be a nice insurance policy just in case. And we were saying to ourselves, what's with that? What possible use then is religion if it's not true? All this dancing around in frocks and bells and smells, which actually I have nothing against, I rather like. (laughs) But if it's not true, if he doesn't think it's true, then what use is it? Remember, dire straits, philosophy is useless, theology sometimes is worse. So second, what the astrologers are not to know is that in fact the gods, or the God, they say doesn't dwell with flesh. This is an idea that's still current, that's still very much at the heart of our society's way of thinking. The idea that God lives in an entirely other, inscrutable, disinterested sphere if there is a God at all. But they're wrong about that. Their conviction is that the divine has nothing to say to us and no willingness to say it. Again, things don't change. You know, it's perfectly possible to live as someone who professes the name of Jesus, who goes to a Christian church, and yet acts essentially like an evangelical deist. It's perfectly possible to live a Christian life that never seriously expects God to answer prayer, so we don't pray. Or that never seriously expects God personally to convict or to guide, so we don't read the Bible. That never seriously expects God to save you when you go out on a limb obeying him, so we don't. We don't obey him. We have our own ways of doing things. We don't trust God's promises. We rely on the things that we can do. And the end result is the church that we have at the beginning of the 21st century. A church essentially without any distinctiveness from the world because we have entirely resolved to live on our own resources. We have, to use Paul's words, a form of godliness, but we deny its power, we deny its reality. And I think this should be our concern for Tuesday right? No matter who wins, no matter who in the plans of God is meant to enter the Oval Office, this may be our reaction. We may be confident or we may be disconsolate at whoever wins because our hope, again, essentially will be in what human beings can do for God, not what God is doing among human beings by his own plans and by his own wisdom. So the message of this book, I think, in many ways, is dare to be a Daniel, not a Chaldean, because we have the words of God, because God has become a human being. And because of that, you should do what you're called to do. On Tuesday, you should vote. You should be involved on your local scoreboard. You should be involved in local politics. You should be interested, and you should be praying with a newspaper open in front of you. But don't any of us be under the misapprehension that this has to do about what we can do. Ultimately, only God can. (laughs) Secondly, and briefly, what God alone knows and makes happen. And this is a huge chunk here of these verses, 12 through 45. One of the things that intrigues me about this story is the question of what's real. What's the dream state and what's the awake state? Johnny and I were watching the movie Inception last night, if you've seen it. It has this uh, scene towards the beginning of it where Cobb, the main character played by Leonardo DiCaprio, is acting within someone else's dream, and you'll have to watch the movie to understand how that's possible. But in the real world, in the other real world, Cobb is, is sleeping And he's arranged for what he describes as a kick, which is a trigger in the waking world, which will signal to the actor in the dream world that it's time to wake up. It is confusing, I know, but it's a marvellous science fiction movie. So there's this moment when Leonardo falls backwards in slow motion into a bathtub of water. And in the dream world in which he's experiencing water suddenly starts gushing in through the windows of the dream world as if to say it's time to wake up and the compelling thing i think about this story about daniel is not that the world that daniel was living in or the world where the king had the dream wasn't a real world it it was as this one is but that there is another world which is above this one which when God acts and when God means us to see things, it's as if his ways will pour in through the windows of the church. And that's what Daniel is seeing. He's seeing God encroach into his world with the authority that God alone has. How does he see it here? Well, in uh, three ways, briefly. Verse 16. Daniel, you'll notice, asked the king for an appointment to tell Nebuchadnezzar what his dream means. Now, this is remarkable in a couple of ways. Not only you'll notice that Daniel makes a promise in faith that he knows that only God can keep, because he doesn't know the dream, right? He's expecting God. He's relying upon God to tell him. But it's convicting in another way, too. This is the, the words of Ronald Wallace, who's a commentator on the book of Daniel. He writes, there had been early hints of God's readiness to reveal the mystery of his purposes to those outside his covenant people. But on the whole, the great prophets had felt that when God had important things to say, he would intimate them to the prophets of Israel. Daniel then outstandingly indulges in a remarkably daring flight of thought. He approaches the whole problem in the firm belief that this distraught Gentile was being given deep insight by the God of Israel. You have to think about that for a moment because it's entirely other to the way that Jews would have thought. In other words, God, Daniel has worked out or been shown, more likely, God initiates a crisis in the Gentile world, in the world of this pagan king, which will be an opportunity for God to show his glory in that world through his people. In other words, God's purposes are not compartmentalized. He doesn't deal with the world in one way and the church in another as if they were two entirely separate compartments. Nebuchadnezzar's crisis is not only Daniel's crisis, it is God's opportunity through Daniel that God's name might be glorified and his name lifted high and that many would be saved. And again, I want you to think about this in terms of what's happening not only in this election, but across our world. It seems that the world is in turmoil. But the answer, I would suggest to you, is not for the church to look for ways to protect itself and its rights and its interests by human means, but to ask, how is God working? How is God speaking to our nation in the ways then that we have opportunity to lift his name high when we talk to our friends who are worried or when people ask us, what's going to influence your vote? Or what do you think will save us? You know, we very rarely see it now when Christians speak. But that people should say, I am praying because only the name of Jesus Christ is going to save any of us. It's only Christ who can be the solution for this nation's problems. It seems seems rather unpopular to say that doesn't it and yet what is the church for if not to say what is the truth which is that what had happened to Daniel was important but God had that covered what happened to an unbelieving nation that needed to know God's mercy was the real issue and I think it's the same issue for us It's like we need the waters of heaven to break in through these windows, right? And to wake us from our self absorption and our own faithlessness, my own faithlessness, to say, this may look like a crisis, but it's because Aslan is on the move. What is he doing? Secondly, you'll notice verse 18 Daniel prays, which is an action, again, which really doesn't have any currency in this world. If people, your friends who are not believers, will ask you, why do you pray? Uh, they at least are thinking you pray because it's a way of calming you down. And they may be in favor of it because of that. But we pray because we believe we can do nothing of ourselves. It is only the action of God that will change things. And so we're going to pray this afternoon for this election. And I find this an encouragement too, when you and I complain that it's so much work having to pray to God in crises, and it would be so much easier if God loves us, if he just left that part out, sorted out the problems, and just had us kind of coast. Notice the greats of the Bible, greater men than you and I, had to get on their knees and ask a gracious God for mercy. That's the way it works in all of our crises. And then we read that the mystery of the king's dream was revealed to Daniel in a vision and his response was immediate and unequivocal, verse 19. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. How did he bless him? Well, he blessed him in spontaneous worship, the poetry of personal praise. And he blessed him, you'll notice, by presenting the priorities of God to this man who had come to kill not only Daniel, but all of the astrologers. And these people were no friends of Daniel, but he begs for their life because that is God's priority, salvation, salvation. And then he blesses God before Nebuchadnezzar by giving credit where it's due. It's not me who can interpret this dream, he says. It is the God of heaven. So to conclude with, how do you and I give credit then where it's due? I have to tell you how struck I've been in this week as we've been interviewing officers, those who are candidates on your behalf for elder or deacon of the church, and we've asked them some frankly, very difficult questions about their lives. And they have answered candidly about their own sin, about their own struggles, about the ways that they have let God down or let their families down, that they've fallen short of the glory of God. This may put you off wanting to stand for officership in the church. But what excites me about it is not the sin. I have plenty of that myself. But it's the confidence in Jesus that they are displaying when they are admitting this. They're saying, what's important to me right now, even in front of you, your examining body, is not my pride or what I need to hide from you, but rather the grace of God which is changing me. It's what Jesus said to Paul, my strength is magnified in your weakness. So when we fess up to the truth with our friends, that God can change us, right? That we don't need to be right about everything, that we're not pretending that we're perfect, we are saying that we, God is the one who saves us. If you want to know who it is that's gotten me out of so many scrapes, it's not me, it's God. The same God who loves you. I'm not great, I can't help you, but I know someone who can. And you'll hear this from George Vera on Thursday night. He would say, forsake your wimp factor. And he means get out of the puddle of whatever sin it is that you're wallowing in. Admit the sin, receive God's encouragement and forgiveness, turn from that sin, but go on in great gratitude to the God of grace who loves you and has called you to his eternal mercy in Christ Jesus. That's the glory of God, that everyone might see his mercy, even if we have to be the showroom models. That's the deal. That's what the church shows this nation a community of sinners saved by the mercy of God. So in conclusion then, what did the dream mean, the statue and its parts? Well, you're going to have to wait until chapter 7 in January to hear exactly what we think it meant as it was explained. But this is the bottom line. Whatever happens on Tuesday, whatever happens in the years to come, Jesus Christ is our certain future. Jesus Christ is the certain future for every human being. And it is Jesus that Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar, in his ignorance, worshipped, that we must worship by lifting his name high. So let's pray. You read these words from this hymn. Crown him the Lord of years, the potentate of time, creator of the rolling spheres, ineffably sublime. All hail, Redeemer, hail, for thou hast died for me. Thy praise and glory shall not fail throughout eternity. Amen.